You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Uh, last week we had <clears throat> Marcus's ordination, so we took a break from uh, our study in John. But the last two weeks we've been looking at chapter 5. We saw Jesus healing the man at the pool on the Sabbath day, and then we saw uh, two weeks ago uh, him demonstrating the authority or claiming the authority uh, that he has being the same as the Father, the ability to uh, to give life, and um, ultimately the ability to to determine how he's going to utilize the Sabbath day. And so we kind of saw the the response of the Jews in that and their desire to uh, to respond with uh, wanting to kill him. Um, and then we saw uh, the application points that kind of flowed from uh, John chapter 5, uh, specifically um, the verses of 19 through 29. Um, we saw that when tempted to doubt God's goodness and circumstances, to remember those plans were filtered through wisdom of the Father and the Son, because we said that, you know, ultimately Jesus is choosing to heal and not to heal various people that are sitting there um, at the pool. And we talked about uh, God's goodness being demonstrated in circumstances and that he's got bigger plans than sometimes we understand. We said, number two, when questioning whether someone will ever be saved, remember the power exists to change that person's life. And Jesus talks about the ability to call people forth from tombs, uh, both the spiritual tombs of, of sin and death and being able to rescue them to salvation, and then long-term, being able to uh, bring people back from the dead for eternal life, which led us into number three, when confused over the death of a loved one, remember the greatest acts of healing through resurrection is still to come. And then lastly, number four, we said, when enticed towards sinful pleasures, remember Jesus is returning to judge. Do right because of the new life and do right because of judgment. And so some different motivations for um, how we are called to, um, to do right and to be obedient um, as we wait for Jesus to come back. All right, uh, John chapter 5, verse 30 through 47. I told you earlier that I think this passage is, it seems confusing on the surface because it's very wordy and you really have to kind of stop, pause, and, and reflect upon what is actually being said here. And so we want to do that together today. And, and I want to read for us what it says Starting in verse 30, it says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe then when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, 
There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our summary sentence for today. As people who often live in a Christian bubble where oversaturation with God's word is common, we must fight to keep listening, believing, and learning so that we keep gaining a deeper love for Jesus with a greater desire for his glory. As people who often live in a Christian bubble where oversaturation with God's word is common, we must fight to keep listening, believing, and learning so that we keep gaining a deeper love for Jesus with a greater desire for his glory. For our kids, God has blessed you with the opportunity to grow up in a Christian home with parents that take you to church. So take every opportunity to listen and believe the things you are being taught by both. We're going to see that some of what the Jewish people are experiencing here is a result of growing up in this culture where they had been exposed to God and had been exposed to his word, and yet neither were really taking root in their life the way that it was meant to. Um, And so they are very knowledgeable about the things of God, but are being impacted very little by the things that they know. Okay, and, and we obviously probably all know people who kind of fit this bill, people who have grown up in church, people who have um, grown up in a, in a Christianized type culture who maybe are very numb to some of the things that we try to share with them because they've been oversaturated with some of it. Uh, they have been overly exposed to it that it's kind of lost some of its, its, uh, its awe or some of its greatness. And so we're going to see today that some of these Jewish people are experiencing that. Um, They are no longer listening. They are no longer believing. They are no longer learning in a way that is leading to uh, personal transformation. In this passage, uh, Jesus makes kind of a confusing statement at the very beginning. He makes the comment that if he alone bears witness about himself, that his testimony is not true. He is appealing to their culture and he is seeking to establish himself on the basis of witnesses to further accuse these religious leaders in their rejection of him. And he is following this pattern of the Old Testament where you would have multiple witnesses to establish some type of truth or some type of validity. So if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, you'll see why why Jesus is talking like this. He's obviously not saying that unless others agree with him or others witness to what he is saying, that what he is saying is no longer true. But he's, he's showing that he wants to kind of uh, support their system of how they go about determining truth. So in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, when the law is being given, it says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. It's why in the Ten Commandments it's so important that you not bear false witness against your neighbor because they put such great value, such, um, such intense value upon the witness of somebody else because ultimately they didn't have a lot of the technology that we have today to help determine whether somebody was guilty or innocent. They didn't have all of the, the tools that we can use to process evidence to either clear somebody or charge somebody. They don't have the ability to, to look at um, fingerprints. They don't have video surveillance to be able to go back and review to see if somebody did something or didn't do something. 
when they were relying a lot of times about what people said about the situation. If you were there, what did you see? What did you witness? What could you testify occurred? And so it was a big deal to bear false witness to the point that in, in some of these courts, you could actually be held accountable for the same crime if you tried to bear false witness against somebody. So if you were being brought in to, uh, to deal with a murder case, maybe, and you bared false witness against somebody or tried to uh, either in a way where you were accusing somebody or trying to exonerate somebody, and it was determined that you were lying, you could be held accountable for the murder. You could be charged with the murder and, and given the same type of consequences. And so witness was very important for them, right? And so Jesus says, I want to establish my identity as the Son of God, not strictly based on my testimony, but I want to bring in other witnesses that can show this is true, okay? So Jesus is not saying that, that, that the truth of what he is saying is up for question. He is simply wanting to further establish in their minds why it is so true, right? So he brings in these other witnesses to esta- help establish his deity. What I love about the way that this is written is that Jesus is taking intentional steps to establish their belief in him. Look what it says. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying, I'm talking to you, and you are not saved. And you are questioning and doubting the validity of this truth. And so what I am about to say, I am saying with intentionality so that you can be saved. Isn't that that great to see that Jesus is addressing their their concerns and their doubts very intentionally, right? Like he doesn't just say truthful things and then step back and hold them accountable for not believing. He continues to appeal to their hearts. He continues to seek after them. He continues to take steps to establish their belief in him. He says, I am saying these things specifically so that you may be saved. And he's appealing to these witnesses, this this understanding of the Old Testament to establish truth. There's four clear witnesses that are listed here. We see John the Baptist being talked about. We see Jesus and his personal works or his miracles being discussed. We see the Father mentioned as a witness of him. And we also see the witness of Scripture, particularly the Scripture that's written by Moses um, in this passage as well. Ultimately, what Jesus is wanting these people to see is that they can't have the Father and not have the Son, right? That to reject Jesus, to rebel against Jesus, to oppose Jesus, is to do so against the Father as well. And John would reiterate a lot of this teaching in 1 John, and he would say, you can't have one without the other. You can't have the Father and not have the Son, that they go hand in hand. And so we've talked about that false religions are those that would seek to to deter people from seeing Jesus in this, this deified form. That, that he is God's son, right? And so Jesus is being very clear here with them because they are, they are feeling very prideful about the fact that, hey, we are followers of Old Testament Yahweh, and we are trying to preserve his glory, preserve his holiness by rejecting Jesus. Jesus is saying, you, you, can't, have, you can't have both. You can't have the Father and, and rejection of the Son. They don't, they don't go together, okay? Um, and so he's bringing in his witnesses to help see that. Two really important things that I want you to see this morning. Number one is don't let an oversaturation of God's word keep you from salvation. 
Don't let an oversaturation of God's word keep you from salvation. For our kids, it is a blessing to be able to grow up in church because God gives you so many ways to learn about him and trust in him. Don't let an oversaturation of God's word keep you from salvation. Jesus is about to bring in these witnesses, these testimonies to indict or to implicate the Jewish people for their lack of belief. And he is showing them that they have been fully exposed to opportunities to believe in him, and they've rejected those opportunities. They've been oversaturated to the point that they have yet really to respond to God's word. First of all, we see number one, they were no longer responding to good teaching. They've had great teaching in their in their in their history. They've been raised around great teaching. They've been exposed to God's word. And very particularly, they have been exposed to the first prophet in the last 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And so they have been able to be on the scene when God has begun to to speak again in ways that he hadn't previously done in the last several hundred years. Right? So God had kind of cut off his, his um, revelation. He had cut off speaking to man through the Old Testament prophets and had gone silent for 400 years. And now John the Baptist shows up and is communicating as the mouthpiece of God, and they are being able to hear it. Right? And so he says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. For a time, they had submitted themselves to John's teaching. They had actually sought him out. It says, you sent to John. So John starts to gain this this following. He's teaching. The, The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders would have grown concerned about this or at least interested about it. And so they send people to listen to John, to hear John. And at first, everything that he's saying is great. Right? He's talking about the Messiah is going to come, and we need to be ready for the Messiah. And they're thinking, absolutely, we've been waiting for the Messiah for for centuries. So they were very quick to listen, very quick to hear, very quick to respond to John's teaching. They're submitting themselves to John's teaching. They're excited about John's teaching. They're even rejoicing about John's teaching. For a time, they had responded in joy to the things that John was saying. And Jesus tells us that. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Problem is, they had stopped listening to John when his teaching required their submission to Jesus as the Messiah. So they were around great teaching. They were around good teaching. They were listening to it, and initially they're responding to the teaching that they're hearing. And then as soon as it starts to impose upon their life, as soon as it starts to impose upon the way that they like to do things, as soon as it imposes upon their perspective about how things should function, then they decide, you know what, I'm not interested in this teaching anymore. And they lose their joy in listening to it. Jesus refers once again to John as being this type of lamp. It's an echo of what we see in Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 132. That makes more sense. All right, Psalm chapter 132. He says in verse 17, Therefore I will make a horn to sprout from David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Right before that, it talks about the saints shouting for joy in response to all of this. 
So most commentators agree that Jesus is referencing Psalm 132 here. It's a messianic prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David, that this lamp would go forth to help prepare the way. There would be shouts of joy in anticipation of this. And so Jesus is appealing to their Old Testament knowledge because they love the scriptures, and he is, he's indicting them over the fact that they have really not realized and understood the scriptures that they know. He says, you, you kind of fit the bill here because John came as this lamp and for a time you rejoiced. For a time you showed joy about the lamp. And as soon as that lamp started to impose upon your preferences, you backed off and you stopped showing joy. They were no longer responding to good teaching. And so Jesus addresses this concern with them. Secondly, they were no longer recognizing God's work around them. Not only are they not yielding to the witness of John, who has come as this lamp, as this forerunner, to pave the way for the Messiah, now that Jesus is on the scene and he's doing works around them, they're dismissive of his works. It says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. We've talked about this already, that John chooses to highlight the miracles that he does to increase our belief in Jesus, right? He doesn't list off every miracle that Jesus does. He lists ones specifically that are meant to increase our belief in Jesus. We've talked about the fact that Jesus did things very specifically to show that he was the Messiah. Was he compassionate towards the sick and the hurting? Absolutely. But was that primarily why he went to the pool that day to heal this man? No, because he could have healed everybody at the pool. Instead, he chooses to go there to heal an individual on the Sabbath day to teach people about who he is. He's absolutely compassionate towards the sick and the hurting, but he's very intentional to reveal his identity to people who were confused about it. The problem is, is that the Jews are no longer recognizing God's work around them, and they're trying to dismiss it. Remember, when we saw the conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus confessed that the works that Jesus was doing weren't possible without God's approval. Remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, look, we're still trying to wrap our minds around who you are, but what we do know is that there's no way you could do the things that you do unless God had sent you. Unless God was approving you, there's no way you could do the things that you do. So it was apparent to those who were most in tune with the scriptures, somebody like Nicodemus, that the only way that Jesus could do the things that he does is that he would have to be approved and sent by God. And yet here, the audience that Jesus is talking to, they are dismissive of his works. Remember, they're wanting to talk about how he was doing them on the Sabbath day versus what he was actually doing, right? They were more concerned with the fact that it's, it's, it's God's day versus the fact that you just made a guy healed who, who we could never help. There was no natural explanation for what he was capable of doing. In fact, John chapter 7, which we'll get to soon, verse 25, listen to this. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? People are kind of confused. They're like, man, if they want to kill him, why are they not doing anything? Do they maybe know in the back of their minds that he really is the Messiah? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, 
and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Translation, they look around and say, gotta be the Messiah. Like, we can't even fathom somebody showing up after Jesus and being the real Messiah and doing anything more than what Jesus has already done. Right? Like their minds are blown to the point where they say, okay, by, by, by deduction here, he has to be the Messiah because we can't fathom somebody showing up after him and doing any more than what he's already done. They're completely blown away and they are acceptive of his works that he has to be who he's claiming to be because if anybody else were to show up and be the Messiah, they would be doing the exact same things. And yet the people in this audience are dismissive about his works. The only logical conclusion was to call him the Messiah. John chapter 10, verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I mean, Jesus continues to appeal to their hearts and says, look, you may not even believe me. You may not even like me, but look at the things that I'm doing. If you'll just stop and pause for a second and look at the things that I'm doing, you have to admit that I am who I say that I am. This, this, is a great, this is a great point of argument for those who are, who are claiming to be believers that are maybe starting to wander, maybe starting to fall away from the faith, to call them back to the fact that they have seen way too much in their life, that they may be doubting God right now. There may be some type of circumstance they're going through right now that causes them to question God's love for them, cause them to question God's goodness to them. But to be able to draw them back and say, look at everything else that you've experienced. There's really no way that you can discount that and discredit that and explain those things away. It's exactly what's happening here. That, look, you, you have to see the works that have taken place around you and admit that I am from the Father, that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. But in their rebellion, in their sin, they are dismissive of the works going on around them. They're downplaying them. They're discrediting them. I said earlier, miracles are not just an expression of compassion for the sick or love for the dying. They are signs that point to a right understanding of who Jesus is. The people were more concerned about discrediting the works of Jesus than trusting in them. So no longer responding to good teaching, no longer recognizing God's work around them. Number three, they were no longer being changed by their Bible study. They were no longer being changed by their Bible study. These guys would put us to shame in the ways that they studied the Bible in comparison to the ways that we do. And we're believers, right? These guys were completely immersed in the Scriptures, right? To the point of oversaturation, to the point that they, were, they, were, they had been in them so much that they had really lost their perspective as to why they were even doing it. They were no longer being changed by their Bible study. Their Bible study had become an end in itself. If these guys had a checklist of when they had done their quiet time and when they had not, 
it was most likely perfect, right? Some of us grew up in a, in a setting maybe where you used to get little stars on a chart for memorizing scripture or for completing your workbook or for doing this or for doing that. If you'd walked in and seen these guys, their chart would have been starred all the way across, right? Like, the, like these guys were in the word. They knew God's word and they thought that was sufficient. They were content with the fact that they were in God's word. They weren't concerned about being changed by God's word. Proper application was not happening. The scriptures point to a deepening belief in Christ, and they weren't responding in that way. It says, um, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. He takes these two guys aside and he shows them how everything in the Old Testament points to him, right? That the scriptures are meant to increase our belief and trust in Jesus. Really, some people think that the Bible is about things that we're supposed to be doing and not doing. Really, the scriptures are, are ultimately about everything that God has done for us, right? And, and, and it's all about Jesus. It's all about the fact that we failed in the garden and we failed ever since then to try to get it right. It's why every story, every hero in scripture is shown to be flawed because it points to Jesus. It points to a greater hero that is needed, right? And so what we see is that they were studying the scriptures and yet when Jesus shows up, when the hero shows up, they want to kill him instead of believe him. If your study fails to lead you into a worship of Jesus, you have failed in your Bible study. The Bible is a window to Jesus, and it's a necessary window, right? So what we see here is these guys have overvalued to the point of thinking that they are secure with God because of their knowledge of the Scriptures. And if we're not careful, we could start to downplay that that knowledge of Scripture is important. And, and, and it certainly and absolutely is a necessary component to knowing Jesus. You can't know Jesus without the Scriptures. It's how he has revealed himself to us. We have to know God's Word. But it becomes a problem if we believe that our knowledge of God somehow elevates us to a status of approval with God. And that's where they had gotten to. That Basically, they had fallen in love with their opinions about God, they had fallen in love with their theology about God to the point that they loved it more than God. And let's not think that we're that far away from that sometimes, right? Those of us who spend a lot of time in God's word have to guard ourselves from loving our time in God's word more than we actually love God. That we, that we become puffed up in our knowledge, that we become prideful in our understanding to where when we're talking with somebody else, we can hear them spouting out their immaturity about God's word and very quickly think that we are better because of our knowledge, better because of our theological understanding to the point that we love our opinions about God more than we actually love God. And that's exactly what he tells them. He says, you don't love God. Like, you know the scripture is probably better than anybody else that Jesus is talking to but you don't really love God. You love your opinions about him. You love the fact that you think you know the Sabbath better than Jesus does, right? They're no longer being changed by their Bible study. Bible study can't just be about knowledge. 
It should result in deeper faith. It should result in obedient action. It should result in transformed lives. Acts chapter 18. This is, this is where everybody needs to be or pursuing in regards to their understanding of Scripture, right? Somebody asked us what the name of our, our son was the other day, and we were telling them, they were like, oh, you named him after a Greek god. No, no, we didn't. We named him after this guy in, a, in uh, Acts chapter 18. Because of what God's Word has to say about this individual, it is, a, it is a picture of what all of us should be in regards to our understanding of God's Word. Look what it says. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Right? He knows the Scriptures. The guys in John 5 know the Scriptures as well, but he is competent in them. Look what it says. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus." What, 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 what scripture is he using? He's not using the New Testament. It's not written yet. He's using the Old Testament to explain Jesus to people, right? Because the Old Testament points to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, you know the scriptures, but you don't believe in me. You don't believe in me. And that's exactly what the Old Testament is about, right? And so here's a man who understands the scriptures and understands them to the point that he embraces Jesus in response to his study. Apollos has studied the word. He's competent in it. And what does he do with his competence? He responds to Jesus and he tells other people about Jesus, right? He believes in Jesus. He accepts Jesus in response to his study. What's the implication for us? persevering in the faith. And we talked a lot about this in the book of Hebrews. Persevering in the faith means you keep your ears open to faithful teaching. You find encouragement from God's work around you and you feast on God's word with the purpose of loving and trusting Jesus more as a result of your study. Now, if you're listening to podcasts, reading blogs, uh, listening to sermons, and it's not leading you to love Jesus more, and you can just stop doing that because that, that's the goal of it. If it's just leading you to have puffed up knowledge, you're probably making yourself worse in some ways. These guys knew the scriptures. They were oversaturating themselves with the scriptures. And the problem was it was having no real effect on them. It's having no real effect on them. And we are in danger because we have grown up in church and we live in a Christianized culture where we are having things thrown at us constantly, good things thrown at us constantly, right? You could listen to any number of pastors throughout the week, any number of blogs you could read, any number of books you could read on Christianity and faith and theology. And if we're not careful, we will submit ourselves to all these things, and we will miss the point of all of it. And we will increase our knowledge and we will puff ourselves up and we will have strong opinions about certain theological slants. And at the end of the day, we won't love Jesus any more than when we first started that study. And I'm just here to tell you that what we've been talking about all through the Gospel of John in our study is that if, if we don't love Jesus and believe Jesus on the, on the end of this study more than we did at the beginning, th then we haven't accomplished what John wanted us to accomplish in reading through his book. Because he said, I have written these things that you might believe in him. 
And so every time you sit down to study God's word, and you absolutely need to sit down and study God's word. So again, don't think that any of this is meant to say, hey, you're off the hook. You shouldn't listen to sermons. You shouldn't read blogs. You shouldn't read books. You shouldn't be in God's word. No, you absolutely have to be. It is the window to seeing Jesus. It is the absolute necessary porthole to see Jesus. We just don't love the porthole more than we love Jesus, right? That's what was happening with the people in John chapter 5. They were overvaluing their knowledge of Scripture to the point that they were not loving Jesus more. And if we're going to keep persevering in our faith, we have to keep putting ourselves under faithful teaching. We have to find encouragement from God's work around us and not dismiss it, not try to explain it away, not try to discount it. When we go through moments of discouragement, that we, we look for ways that God is working around us to increase our faith in him. We feast on God's word with the purpose of loving and trusting him more as a result. Number two, don't let self-glory and pride keep you from salvation. Imagine these guys are, are completely oversaturated with God's word and they are not saved. You can think to yourself, like, how in the world does that happen? And, and I've often wondered, like, how, how, do, how do you have pastors who continually fall away from the faith when they've been in scripture for, for decades? And this is exactly how. I mean, we, we see a, a strong group of people right here who had immersed themselves, probably not only reading the scriptures, probably have large chunks, if not the whole thing, memorized, which is crazy to think about, right? Because we live in a day and age where, where information is readily available to us. We don't have to memorize a whole lot. They had, they had big chunks of the Old Testament memorized. They're not saved. They're not saved. Tyson and... Uh, Adam and Ben and I are constantly sending articles back and forth about um, pastors that fall away um, and, and, and trying to wrap our minds around how that happens. And, and one that recently we were sending around was a pastor who I've referenced before and used some of his stuff before, who is now being accused of trying to hire a hitman to take out one of what he would view as his competitors. And you just have to pause and stop and say, What? Like, and I don't know if that's true or not, which is why I'm not going to give his name. Um, but let me just tell you, I've never, been falsely, I've never been falsely accused of trying to hire a hitman to kill anybody in my life, right? Like, like, I'm so far away from that to where even if this whole account ends up being not true, you still have to pause and question and say, how did that ever gain any traction in that, in that situation, right? But you stop and you say, well, that's exactly what's happening right here right? Like you got people who know the scriptures who decide they want to hire people to kill somebody who they view as a competitor, right? Like, hey, we've got our religion that we love right here. This guy shows up and says he's the Messiah. We need to kill this guy because he is invading upon the, the belief system that we have, right? They knew the scriptures, just wasn't changing them. Number two, don't let your self-glory and pride keep you from salvation. For our kids, believe in the things that you do understand and ask questions about the things that you don't understand. Number one, their lives were focused on gaining recognition rather than dispensing God's love. Look what else it says. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's that, uh, it is they that bear witness about me. You freeze to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He says, you, you, don't, you guys don't love God. He doesn't say you don't love Jesus, because they would have said, you're right, we don't. He says, you don't love God, the very, the very being that you have basically devoted your whole life to. He says, you don't love him. 
I've come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What's he saying there? He's saying, you guys are so caught up in the recognition that you're getting from other people because of your spiritual status that you've, you've lost complete sight of trying to work towards God's glory. Like your life's purpose is no longer about God's glory. It's about how much recognition and glory you can receive for yourself. Their love for self kept them from really loving God. The reality of our love for God is seen in our submission to Jesus. You can't love God and not seek to obey Jesus. And again, that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, you don't love God because you don't submit to me. Right? I, I heard, <coughs> I heard a, 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 somebody was just kind of talking um, and, and was sharing with me a story about an individual who has, has been in a lot of sexual sin, has tolerated a lot of sexual sin in their life, and they're going through a situation, and they are talking about how they have complete trust in God that he's going to carry them through that situation. And when I hear that type of thing, I have to pause and stop and say, why do you believe that? Like, why, why are you going to solicit and call upon God's provision right here in this situation when you are actively living in opposition to Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it didn't make sense to Jesus here when he's saying, look, you can't claim to love the Father and not be in submission to the things that I'm saying to you. They're more concerned about what others thought than what God thought. Their lives were focused on gaining recognition rather than dispensing God's love. Jesus says, you don't love me. You don't love the Father. Number two, their security was based on self-righteous accomplishments rather than submission to Christ's work. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So they were so prideful about the law and they're striving to keep the law, they felt like we've got a pretty good hope here that, that we have done exactly what Moses has told us to do. The problem was is that Moses talked about Jesus. Moses wrote about Jesus. And so Jesus says, your, your guy who is your hope, Moses, he's actually going to accuse you on the day of judgment. Like you're going to think, hey, we're good in your eyes, God, because we did what Moses said. And Moses is going to stand up and say, no, you didn't because I wrote about Jesus and you rejected him. He says, your, 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 your thing that you're hoping in is actually going to be your condemnation when you stand on the day of judgment. Their security was based on self-righteous accomplishments rather than Christ's work. They could not look past their own good works to see Christ. And then number three, their unwillingness to believe what was shared with them kept them from believing greater things later. What do I mean by that? In Luke chapter 16, Verse 31, this is the end of the parable about Lazarus, right? He's the poor guy who's outside the rich man's house, who both of them die, both of them end up in different eternal places. And the rich man is very concerned about his, uh, his family, right? And so he says, I need you to send somebody to my family to tell them uh, things that I did not believe. And what's, what's the response? Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus says, look, they're not willing to believe what's already placed before them. They're not going to believe even greater things placed before them later, right? And, and they don't. 
Like, the resurrection happens. Somebody does come back from the dead, the very person they tried to kill, and they try to explain it away still, right? They try to dismiss it still. They try to come up with, with ways to explain it away. They come up with this, this whole plan. Hey, if anybody asks, hey, body was stolen, like wrong tomb. Like, like they, they come up with ways to try to explain it away. Their unwillingness to believe what was shared with them kept them from believing greater things. It's the exact opposite of what we saw in the life of Philip. You go back to John chapter 1. Philip's a guy who seemingly knows the scriptures pretty well, has a pretty good reputation, pretty morally upstanding guy, right? So probably somebody who could have clung to the hope of Moses as well. And he gets exposed to Jesus. It says, now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, sorry, I'm talking about Nathanael. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip's telling Nathanael, hey, we found the one that Moses and the prophets are talking about. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So here you have a guy who knows the scriptures, has a pretty good life to back up his knowledge of the scriptures, right? Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathaniel knew the scriptures, had a pretty good morally upstanding life to back it up, gets exposed to Jesus and believes in Jesus. And then Jesus says, there's going to be some greater things for you to believe in down the road too. But it necessitated that Nathaniel believed in these first things presented to him so that he could believe in the later things as well. We must believe what has been revealed to us so that we are better prepared to believe more in the future. The implication for us, if your life is focused on yourself, you're going to have a problem loving God, honoring God, and escaping his judgment. It's just the facts from here in John chapter 5. If your life is focused on yourself and your glory and your accomplishments, according to Jesus, you're going to have a really hard time loving God and honoring God to the point that Jesus would say you can't do either of those things. Therefore, you can't escape his judgment. Let's not make the mistake of dismissing the Jews as a group of people that we've heard about our whole life who just never figured it out and never believed in Jesus and think that we couldn't also be in that group. Many of us have grown up in church. We've grown up in a culture where we have been oversaturated with with Christianity and the things of God. And if we're not careful, we grow numb to it and we stop listening to it and we start to become dismissive of it. And we, we know a lot of things about God, but it's not translating into us loving him and believing him more and more. I mean, think about it. You come every Sunday here and listen to a sermon from me or somebody that's up here teaching. Every Sunday. And then we have small groups and then we have accountability groups and then we have Matt 28 nights and, and you're getting a lot of teaching. And if all it does is increase your knowledge but fails to, to enact any type of change in your life where you're loving him more, believing him more, when we exit these doors and we go through circumstances this week, that we're not filtering those circumstances through everything that we're learning, then we're failing in our studies. 
So from an application standpoint, reflect on specific ways that you are faithfully growing in your trust in Jesus and obedience to his commands as a result of sermons and personal study. And you absolutely have to be in God's word this week. You have to be placing yourself under the authority of God's word. It's the only way to know Jesus. It's the only way to, to believe in him and trust in him more. It's to have him communicating with you through his word. So in no way would I try to deter or detract or to minimize or to lessen your time in God's word. What I want you to see is that the result of that time has to be leading you to love him and trust him more, or you're failing in it. Don't be content just to check off a list that says, I read my Bible, I know some good theology, I've listened to some blogs, I've, I've or read some blogs, I've listened to some podcasts, da-da-da-da-da, and think, that, and think in some way that you've improved yourself. Some of us have been around it for a long time. We've grown up in it. Let's make sure that it's, it's moving us forward in our love for him and in our trust for him. For our kids and family worship questions this week, we want to challenge them to believe the things that they're capable of believing right now so they're able to believe more things down the road, right? We want to, we want to head off any type of unbelief that they're capable of believing in. The, the, these Jews were capable of believing that the, that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and they rejected it, which made them unable to really move forward in their belief to believe in the resurrection. What are some things that you, your children, understand about God and believe about him? And then what are some things that they're still confused about or just don't understand about him that you could potentially take some time to better explain to them this week? Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you for the massive benefits and advantages that come with growing up in a Christian family, having parents that have taken us to church, God, it's such a, a massive blessing to, to be in a context where we have heard thousands and thousands of sermons, thousands and thousands of Sunday school lessons, that we've been given thousands and thousands of hours to even read and study the Bible on our own. God, we know there's some people here today that didn't have that. They didn't grow up in a Christian home. They didn't grow up with a Christian family. They didn't grow up going to church. And they could probably testify to us even better than ourselves the advantages of having that. But God, we know that there's also obstacles that come with that too. That if we're not careful, we grow numb and dismissive to things that we've heard for far so long. And God, I pray that you would protect us from that. God, help us never to stop listening to the faithful teaching that's given to us. Help us never to grow dismissive of the work that you're doing around us. Help us never to lose fruitful application from the times that we are exposed to your word. God, protect us from this state that, that, that these Jewish people found themselves in, where they had been joyful about good teaching and then had fallen away from it. They had been willing to embrace your work, and, and then they were wanting to dismiss it when it went against their expectations. They were intentional about being in your word, just not in intentional in the application part of it. God, I pray that we would seek to know you regularly, through our own personal time, that we would continue to gather faithfully when your word is being taught publicly. But God, help us not to be content simply by gathering and reading. God, help us to be very intentional to seek to hear and then to do your word. God, help us to keep believing the things that we're being exposed to 
realizing that it opens us up to be able to believe more things that you bring our way as well. Help us to be faithful to to love you and to be about your glory versus our own glory. Help us to continue to cling to the work of Christ and not our own self-righteousness. God, give us reason to cause and uh, cause to, to pause and reflect this week to make sure that we are putting ourselves in a position not only to hear your word, but to apply it. God, we ask that your word would not return void in our life and that you would produce more belief, more trust, and more love for you as we hear your word taught, as we read and study it on our own. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.